remember that we're all going to die. Everybody we love is gonna die. Our pets are gonna die. I'm gonna die. So you gotta live. Make a conscious effort just knowing like, oh, I'm alive today. You know, you may not get that tomorrow. So say I love you to everybody every day. Hello, welcome to another episode of Bunny Hugs and Mental Health, a free safe space for people to share and learn from others' experiences with mental health and addictions. I'm Todd Rennebaum, suicide attempt survivor and recovering substance abuser. Got another fascinating episode here with two guests, Lauren Carroll and Aaron Morelli, and together they're known as Death Wives. So they have classes and courses on how to become death doulas and and it's all about death and how you can be supportive to people during this process of death. It's quite fascinating. Uh, I think it is a very important service. And it's uh, it's similar to working hospice, I suppose, but this, it's, it's kind of all-encompassing. They can help with funerals and help with aftercare and all types of stuff. So it's it's really incredible stuff. But you'll, you'll hear all about it. Coming up in the following weeks, there's still incredible and amazing guests. Uh, next week, I'm speaking with a gentleman named David Grainer, and he's a stand-up comedian, and he, he has courses where people with mental health issues and struggles, they, they learn to do a set, a five-minute set of stand-up comedy with David, and then they do a show, and it's all very professional and very slick, and it's amazing. And uh, So anyway, that's next week. But before that episode, there's also a Thursday episode with mental health headline hot takes with Nick and Todd on Thursdays. And of course, all this stuff is on YouTube as well. Uh, really quickly, I just want to mention there's also a Bunny Hugs Mental Health merch store now. Uh, you can find that in the show notes at a Buy Me a Coffee. If you like what you're hearing and you want to support me, that'd be lovely. You could just buy me a coffee. Uh, thank you to everyone that's been buying merch and sending me coffees. It's been so, so very much appreciated. I can't express just how appreciative I am. Uh, so thank you so much for that. Speaking of support, uh, I am doing this podcast full time now for the last few months. Uh, and of course, I can't do it without sponsors and support. Uh, I've been accepted to have some ads put in automatically. Uh, and I'm in Canada, and now the, Spotify has just now accepted other countries to be able to do that. So I'm gonna I'm gonna experiment with it. Just be patient with me. Uh, I have no idea what any of this means, or I'm I'm, I'm experimenting. I have no idea what's going on. But uh, so so you know there might be an ad or two more at the beginning or the end or whatever. Uh, I just appreciate your patience and just know that this podcast wouldn't be possible without ads. So if you are a fan of the show, thank you so much for listening. And uh, thank you so much for your patience through having ads. I mean, ads are fine. My favorite podcasts have ads. It's fine, right? But anyway, without further ado, I give you Death Wives, Lauren and Aaron. It's kind of a selfish reason why I'm talking to you guys. One, because I think it's fascinating and great work, but also um, just to prepare me for the inevitable one day. So, um, yeah. That's not selfish. That's smart. <laughs> I mean, the yeah. thing is, is you're definitely lucky that you haven't had great grief yet, but we're all going to have great grief at some point and we're all going to die. Every single one of us, we always say people plan for weddings and, and babies, but that's not guaranteed for everyone. Death is guaranteed for everyone. And it's something that we don't talk about enough. And we can really have 
more say in our death. We can have more planning in our death. I mean, we have time (laughs) and being a funeral director, I say we have time, but even time isn't guaranteed to everyone. So we have time Mm. until we don't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Uh, My wife was watching a show the other day. I think it's like the Swedish death cleaning. Yes. Swedish death cleaning. Uh Uh, And they were talking to, uh, I guess a client on there and, and she was so annoyed that nobody wanted to talk to her about, her dying. She's like, she had a uh, terminal cancer. I think it was too. And, and anytime she'd bring it up, you know, people would poo poo it and avoid the subject. She's like, I need to talk about this. Like I'm the one going through it. And I know you guys have your own problems and stuff, but what is it about the North American culture where it's just, we avoid that subject? Well, we do have a huge aversion to it. Um, and it's kind of cyclical. Lauren, do you want to explain it? Or do you like me too? <laughs> I mean, the aversion to death is always like, well, where do you start? What part are you not comfortable with? Is it the dying, the physical part of what that feels like? Is it the FOMO? Like, I'm going to be missing out. What does that feel like? Or is it that grief part, which we find is what most people are afraid of and why most people don't want to talk about death because death is quote unquote sad. And so that woman who's dying of cancer, she's dying of cancer. She's actively dying, but the people who don't want to talk to her about it, it's more likely it's fear-based from their part, not that they don't want to be supportive, but people don't know how to be supportive because we don't have these conversations. We don't have that baseline of support for people to deal with those issues, deal with the grief part, deal with feeling unprepared and scared and not knowing anything about death. So really when we address, well, what part of death is afraid to you? That's when we can start having conversations about those different cyclical aspects. Mm -hmm. I would add that humans are generally afraid of things they're unfamiliar with, right? We're afraid of the unknown in general. And so death is kind of the grandest example of that unknown in, in like human physical ways, like what happens to a body when someone dies, but also in the biggest spiritual ways of all, you know, like what happens next. And so it's natural to be afraid of something that we're not familiar with. Um, but but when we look at it from a more sociological perspective, like you asked specifically about North America, because it's they don't have this same aversion in a lot of other parts of the world. In a lot of other parts of the world, death is still seen as very sad, but it's also seen as inevitable and as a responsibility of the community and of the loved ones to manage with honor, right? And so the difference here in America is that most people aren't very hands-on in the care of their loved ones when they're dying and at the time of death and in those first few days or weeks after death. Most of the time, that's something that's outsourced um, to an industry that's become, you know, increasingly over time, a little more corporate and a little less user-friendly, perhaps, for the griever. Um, And so that's like a lot of what our work is, is trying to course correct that and trying to show people here other ways that you can do it. You don't have to do it this way. Uh, because it it is a it is a sacred thing, and and when with that exposure, right, when people see somebody that they love dying, and they choose to be present, and they choose to confront it with love instead of with fear, they grow tremendously on the other side of that. Their grief looks very different on the other side of that. And we always say, like, our our goal is never to have it not be sad. It will always be sad. Grief is a, is a sacred thing that's connected to death, but it's the fear part that we can change. 
um, if we're brave mm-hmm. enough to 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 approach it with love instead. Right. Yeah. Um, uh oh, I forgot again. <laughs> don't worry we can talk about anything and everything about that <laughs> uh, oh shit what was I going to say oh there, well, I know I've seen some documentaries of cultures and stuff and um, it's like some of them it's like they'll actually dig up their loved ones once a year and like basically grieve all over again and celebrate their life all over again and and then you know they change their I don't know what they do some kind of ceremonies and stuff and then they put it back and um so, yeah, no, that wasn't, I remember what I was going to ask now. <laughs> oh my God. The meds haven't kicked in yet. Uh, <laughs> I'm okay. drinking my coffee finally and it's like 10 o'clock here. So, <laughs> okay. I know what I was going to ask. Do you think COVID has maybe made it worse because not only like, you know, people already put their their elderly people in homes and what you know, let them slowly decay in there. But you know, in the hospitals, you weren't even allowed to be in the bloody building. Uh, do you, do you think COVID has made it worse? Uh, on you know, around this fear. <laughs> I think there's, yeah. I was going to say, I think there's two answers to that. So I'm going to put on back in the, my funeral director hat when I was a funeral director during COVID and how I don't even want to say it was one of those first times that I think people realized how important it is to have funerals, how important it was to see people um, because it was taken away from them. And I think it was probably the hardest grief that I've gone through because I could not facilitate a place for them to see their loved one, a place for community to come together to grieve. And I think right now more than ever is the time for people to realize that they can have those funerals now. They can come together and grieve the person that they lost. Um, But on the flip side of that, people did deal with death for the first time in their lives. And we had, I would say, more people curious about death and dying because they hadn't experienced it before. And for a lot of people, it was traumatic. It was not a good death. So they wanted to see, well, what's the flip side of this? How can we have a good death? How can we have beautiful, meaningful ceremonies? Because right now I'm completely lost in my grief, feel completely isolated in my grief. Um, and I think a lot of people, that's where they're at right now, is they just feel like I've been isolated for so long. I feel so alone in this. But the thing is, is that's how everybody is feeling. Mm. All Everybody knows somebody who died from COVID. Everybody has been in grief solitary. I mean, for the last three years, really. Um, and so for us, I would say our business has grown because of COVID directly. And directly because of that grief that has nowhere to go. What's that called? Disenfranchised grief. Um, and so for me as a funeral director, it was horrible watching people want to have that space and not be able to give it to them. And then on the other hand, I think it's death was in our face when, like Aaron said, it's been taken out. It's been taken out of the home. It's been taken care of by professionals, you know, somebody gets sick, they go to the hospital and they die. They call the funeral home. The funeral comes and picks them up. They're in an assisted living. 
family may not even be in the same state anymore. The person dies, call the funeral home, picks them up, does a cremation, sometimes just sends the ashes. I mean, that disconnect was so common that I think it took people actually having the options taken away to make them realize like, whoa, this needs to change and we can do better. Mm. Yeah, interesting. So it's a, I mean, it, it made, it, it kind of made things worse in a way, but by making things worse, people want to make it better, even better than it was. Huh, interesting. Okay. Um, I know that uh, like when my grandfather died, we didn't have a funeral for like, it was like six months later and it sucked. It was like, you need that ceremony, I guess, lack of a better word and, and getting together and, and uh, grieving together, even if it's only a couple hours or whatever, it's, it, it was tough. Uh, I would never, I don't know. Cause you, you see sometimes where it's like, there will be no funeral or whatever. And they, they request that. I would never do that to my family. No offense to anyone that's dead that did that. <laughs> If you're watching funerals are for the living. That's one thing we like to say all the time. Funerals are for the living. If you ask somebody, well, what do you want to have happen to you? I have so many people say, Oh, just throw me in a ditch. Ha ha ha. Don't have a funeral. <laughs> but people loved you. People cared. They deserve that opportunity to have a platform and a stage to put their grief together, to love this person one last time. So that's probably one of the biggest things we promote is doing viewings after death because it really does help solidify what has happened, that process, seeing their body transformed. Maybe they had been sick and suffering for a long time. There's something really peaceful about seeing them not hurting anymore. And a mm. lot of people are afraid to take that first step. And then the second part, like you just said, you got to have a funeral and it has to be a good one. Aaron can uh, talk about how to make a good funeral because if you have a funeral, good job. But if it's a bad funeral and you're like, no, I don't want to save my soul. I want to cry about my friends right now. Uh, that can have a different kind of trauma. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Aaron, uh, tell us more about a good funeral. <laughs> we often um, start classes by asking people, have you ever been to a bad funeral? And classes? You have classes on how to have a funeral? Oh, yeah. We've oh, got, we teach, oh boy. <laughs> we have a whole school on death dualaship and all kinds of uh, death education and including, uh, including how to craft funerals and how to have home funerals and the whole, the whole thing. So that's our, our whole mission is we want everyone to know this because again, like circling back to that familiarity, right? This is an integrated part and an integrated role in society that more people know they, they can practice and, and do the less fear there will be over time. It's a slow thing. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah, so we'll start by asking uh, oftentimes who's been to a bad funeral and, you know, people are shy at first and then I'll say, okay, come on. Nobody's been to a bad funeral. Like where you thought maybe you were at church or you weren't quite sure whose funeral this was for, because the person that they're describing isn't the person that, you know, or even worse, if they mispronounce their name or they misrepresent their beliefs or their ideology or, you know, their sexual orientation, or we've, we've been to these types of funerals and they add insult to injury, right? You, you see this group of people who are there because they need a place to grieve and remember and celebrate. And instead they're sitting there like biting their tongues because whoever's standing up front at the pulpit is just saying words that don't have anything to do with the experience that they're having or with the person who died. And that's unfortunately really common. It's not the only way it happens. People do have beautiful funerals, but that is a very common experience that happens more often than, than we wish that it did. Um, mm. And so a good funeral 
is where you're creating a space where people know that, that this is a designated place for your grief to be okay and embraced and even like maybe provoked a little bit because we're going to be talking about this person. We're going to be putting pictures of them up. We're going to be playing all their favorite music. You try to get the community involved. You know, if you have a good planner ahead of time, that person's asking everybody who knew and loved them to send in songs that remind them of them and a little bit about why and photos of them together because then you've got such a wider spread to share with the community of who this person was through multiple pairs of eyes, right? Not just through one set, because we're all different versions of ourselves with different people. So at a really good funeral, everyone leaves feeling like, wow, I learned like more about them than I knew because I, I saw them through other eyes and other hearts. Um, mm. And another, you know, important part for us of a good funeral, there's a lot of important parts. It's the storytelling. It's the idea of legacy and like, how long are people going to remember you? And what is the story that they're going to remember? And hopefully you lived a life that told that story, but there's no better opportunity than a funeral to encapsulate it into words. That's, you know, a talented funeral director or, or efficient is, is, is giving to this family. And they're not hollow words that they say at every single funeral. You know, they're words that they took time to curate. And that means spending a lot of time with the family and the loved ones immediately after the death, actually being present and witnessing their grief and interviewing them about their loved ones. I've gone into a lot of bedrooms of dead people recently after their death because their family wanted to show me who they were because it's my job to represent them, right? And so that's an, a thing that's full of honor. And it's also full of grief work in that in that week or you know that, that time frame where you're working with that family right after the death. Um, and then the other function that's really important to a funeral is to remind people to care for each other. It's a, it's a really good learning opportunity for the whole community who's sitting there. We always say like, look at these people in the front row because that's usually the immediate family members that people most impacted by the grief and we say it's great that you're all here right now thank you for showing up for this remember that they're going to need you in a week in a month in six months they're going to need you in different ways so like please keep showing up for them and on the flip side remember that you're not going to escape this either because death is 10 out of 10 every single person we don't know when where or how but we do know it will happen so you're going to need that too when your time comes or when you're the one grieving right and so we're trying to we want people to take care of each other. And if grief has any kind of silver lining, that's, that's it. Hmm. Ah, nice. I, uh, in the, in the same day, I, I, I went to the worst funeral and the best funeral. It was actually my, my grandmother. She was a, a Jehovah's witness and a lot of my family aren't, or they were kicked out. So we went to the, the service and the fact, like we weren't in the front row, we weren't even allowed to say anything, stand up or do anything. So it was like all these people, nobody knew. They all loved my grandmother and they all had great stories, but we were all like, we we felt almost shunned to be there, but my family knew that was going to happen. So then right after that, we had our own funeral at, like we, we had a banquet place at a hotel and then we all just got drunk and talked and laughed and awesome. it was yeah it was amazing so it's like you uh, it was kind of you needed that right you knew yeah, yeah. some intuitive knowing like this isn't going to give us the grieving space that we need the way it's being done so we're going to create that and that's that's what a good funeral is it's like what does this group of people this family this community in this set of circumstances need right now and let's make that mm -hmm. for them instead of something copy paste just because we're all so uncomfortable with it that we're not going to get creative. You're right. Right. And that's what I was going to say. The, if you take even a further back step, I said at the very beginning, we're all going to die. Why not plan your own funeral mm. and plan the fun, write your own eulogy, decide where you want it to be because more often than not people are going to follow 
the common road path of like, okay, we go to the church, we go do this, we go do that. Versus, you know, me and Aaron have talked about this a lot. Like I, what am I going to have at my, my funeral, Aaron, that is a hundred percent me? Ah, I mean, a margarita fountain. We've got a whole list of songs oh. that we're going to play. The location is very yeah. important, etc. Yep. <laughs> so why not? You know, I mean, you're, if you're not actively dying, it's kind of fun to think about your funeral. <laughs> I, like I mean, thing, like, hmm, what do I love the most? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> How do I want people to remember me? Because you can set that stage too. Like, do not use this photo blown up at the front, please, you know, <laughs> and have strippers. Sure. I know in Japan that they do that sometimes. So really? Yes. Mm-hmm. Wow. And they have professional mourners that they'll pay too. I mean, other countries know how to have a funeral and here, <laughs> I, you know, it's really sad here in Colorado. When I was a funeral director, I'd say almost 50% of people don't have anything. It's so They're sad. Like, oh, maybe we'll do a celebration of life later or, Oh, I don't know. You know, we'll scatter their ashes in the mountains sometimes. And it's not my place to say this is really, really important. But I do try and say like, okay, well, you know, maybe in a year, just have everybody get together and share some memories. Like a funeral doesn't have to take place immediately either. Like when you Mm -hmm. said your grandpa's was six months later, Mm -hmm. perfect. Do it though. And if it really, really sucked, redo it. I mean, we did. Like you did. Mm-hmm. We've yeah. had, we've done funerals like that too, where the family comes and says their funeral like hurt us more than it helped us. We want to redo it. Mm-hmm. Ah, see, my grandpa's was six months later. So the sucky part was that that six months of waiting because it felt like I we, you know, I mean, I don't know. It's like you needed that closure. Mm-hmm. Not that not that I was like, yeah, there he's there. We buried him now, and all better. <laughs> but yeah, we just needed that 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 time but uh so so what is oh actually do you ever hear this joke people are dying for your business yeah it's a good one yeah. they are quite <laughs> literally um, um, so thank you to them <laughs> yeah, yeah. uh do you so so what do you do as death doulas are you there when people are passing and like help the family through that whole process or is it more the, the planning of the funerals and all that stuff so there's a, a, a large scope of practice. The answer is yes to both of yes and <laughs> I suppose. Uh, um, death doulas can do all of it, or they can say I'm going to be. You know, it's kind of like before death, during death, or after death, if you will. And there are different subtitles for each of those types of doulas. So if it's a before death doula, you're doing a lot of educating people on death and dying. You're doing a lot of talking to them about the different options that they have at the end of life and for their burial and for their ceremony. You're talking to them about anything like Lauren said in the very beginning of our interview, like what fears are getting in the way of their death, like the physical pain part, the finance part, the grief part, how can we help address that? You know, doulas aren't also all qualified as therapists or financial counselors, but they can figure out where that person needs support and bring that in. Um, so so the, the before doulas are really more about the reconciliation of the fact that this person's going to die and how can we create as much acceptance and ease and if wanted, um, ceremony and opportunity for love and grief to be present before that happens. And then the, the doula who's there during the death is often the same doula, but it doesn't have to be. Would be called the 11th hour doula, right? Have you heard the term 11th hour? Like clock has almost struck midnight, basically. And mm-hmm. 
So their role is more passive. They're sitting vigil with the person. They um, sometimes are kind of a, a moderator or an advocate, a buffer, if you will, but between the person who's dying, medical staff, and even the family, uh, because the family might have a lot of questions and they might have a lot of feelings coming up. And so the doula is a really good place for support there. Uh, and then they're thinking about things like the environment, the temperature in the room, the sound in the room, the smell in the room, a gentle touch for the person who's dying. And all of that will vary based on the person who's dying and you know their, their preferences. Uh, and so, yes, they're there during the, the death. Um, and then the after part is kind of a, a crossover where we're now we're talking a little bit about like home funerals or even funeral director care, depending on where you're at in the state. Um, but what do you want to do with that body as soon as it's died, right? The, the traditional American way when people don't know is that it's whisked away pretty quickly, either to a morgue or to a funeral home. Um, but what we advocate for is the family having time with it before that happens if they want to and normalizing that because that's normal almost everywhere. You know, the body does still belong to the family. And once death has occurred, there's not a clock that's ticking. We, we like to say that death is not an emergency. And so advocating for that time. Did you want to add to that, Lauren? Oh, I was just going to say that, you know, the viewing aspect really, I think, starts our grieving process, too. I said how important I think it is because it's there's that psychological part of like, this is real, not I haven't seen them. They could walk through the door, which we hear a lot. Um, but as my time as a funeral director, I've never once and I proudly say this never once had anybody regret viewing their person, not once. They've said it was the hardest thing they've ever done. They've sobbed over their body, but they've never regretted it. And I hate when people come back and say, I wish I would have seen them. And that happens so often. You don't get that opportunity again. And so that's what we really advocate from the start is take that time every everywhere, even Canada. You have a space before the body legally has to have anything done to it. It's about, it's 24 hours. And so even if they want to go that very conventional route, take the time, be with them. You can do that legally without having to go through any steps or anything like that. Um, and it really is, in my opinion, and many others, crucial in beginning that grieving process. There's a big gap that happens when we haven't had that solidifying moment of they're dead. And also me and Aaron have been with a lot of dead people. Most people haven't. And so I think a lot of people think that dead people are scary all of a sudden. No, they're still the person that you love. And something happens in that space too. I've never, and Aaron, you, you can share your stories. I've also never been in a space where somebody's died, where it feels bad, where it feels scary. There's kind of a piece that has taken over that that area if it's a natural death. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's my two cents of really why mm. starting with a viewing is so important. Hmm. I, uh, so my brother went and saw my grandmother, my other grandmother, I, I'm confusing people, but it doesn't matter. My brother went and visited my one grandmother after she passed in the hospital and I remember him coming afterwards like, oh, I wish I'd never done that because now that's my final memory of her and stuff. And so then 20 years later, when my when grandfather passed, I actually went to the home 
because it was all very confusing. Nobody knew what was going on. So I went to the home and there's an ambulance driver guy there. And he's like, he's just so you know, he's passed and you can go in the room and, and say goodbye if you want. And I was so hesitant because of those words my brother put in my brain. But I, I did actually go in there and he was just in his bed in the home. And I, yeah, I'm so glad I did. And then I left and then I regretted not. I don't know, not doing more. Cause I just kind of peeked around the corner. I was like, bye grandpa. <laughs> so then my mom went back and I went back with her. So I'm glad I did. I did go back and I was, and we had a nice, uh, yeah, a nice goodbye. So anyway, um, this, this whole show is about me now. No, <laughs> no, that's fine. I mean, when we start talking about grief, me and Aaron always joke, we don't like to tell people what we do. <laughs> Unless we're in the right space because everybody has some deep grief that they've been holding on to. And all of a sudden we're like the green flag. They're like, oh, you get it. Let me share everything. And mm. so, yeah, if you well, need to decompress and share stories, we're here for that. Too. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I appreciate that. Um, it, my, my most recent grief was actually a dog. And mm. uh, I don't know if you guys ever have to deal with animal grief but and I, I was holding him when he was being put down and all that stuff and i'm so as hard as it was again i'm so glad i was and um yeah that one that one ooh, that was still a little ouchy but <laughs> um yeah what what if a person's a real asshole that dies do you ever get that and people are like first we gotta we gotta say a thing on him we gotta talk about pets yep oh okay pets and then assholes before pets and then assholes right (laughs) we get pets because there's too many assholes in this world (laughs) we uh really validate animal loss and pet grief we really validate it and we recognize that it's not really validated you know it's kind of like oh yeah yeah, kind of like you know, miss one day of work and then we need you back here. Oh, no, we're sharing tattoos. I've got all my animals. <laughs> it's important. Yes, yeah, it I is important. I love it. But <laughs> sorry, sorry, Aaron. No, that's okay. Um, animals, it sounds like you know, for a lot of people, they're our best friends. They're our closest companions. There's an unconditional love there. There's a pureness there. We spend more time with them than we spend with most of our other companions. I mean, they sleep next to us, you know, they're our best friends, they're our family members. And so we just want to honor that animal loss is real and significant. And some sometimes don't come after me haters, but sometimes even harder than human loss, you know, depending on those relationships. So yeah, especially if they're an asshole. We even have a class specifically about pet loss, because just like we advocate for people to spend time with their human after they've died. You, you did that. I mean, a lot of people don't realize that they could have their pet put to sleep. I have, uh, in America here, we have facilities that will come to your home and they'll, so your dog will be at home. You'll be able to hold them. And that's what I've done with my last four pets. And I've done home funerals where you just put them on ice like you would with a person. And that also gives you time. But like Aaron was saying, that's for some people, that's better family than they've ever had in their life. And to have that death disregarded, whew, that's, that's a heavy grief. We have one program called Death School, and the final project is doing community funerals. So each person has to do a funeral of someone who maybe didn't get a funeral or was misrepresented or <laughs> a lot of times it's pets. And I always have to warn, like, Okay, if you do one on your grandma, may not cry. If you do one on your, 
be a sobbing mess <laughs> because my pets have meant so much. My dog died five years ago and I still can't talk about him. So, um, yeah, I think that, you know, that's, that's a huge area of grief that we're just kind of like, meh, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, that one's, uh, that one I'm, so I used to work at a, at an animal shelter mm. and I mean, almost oh. daily I was, involved with putting animals down oh, so oh no you feel like i could never yeah. i was 18 years old funeral director yeah yeah I, I was 18 years old like i think i i actually had no idea but i was like creating a lot of trauma in myself at that time but um so i knew what to expect when my dog was going down but still it was like i don't know it was yeah it's still ouchy that's a hard <laughs> job that you did it's a hard job there's got to be some grief there it was hard. I, I remember sobbing to my grandmother one day about my job. Uh, actually, this show's all about my grandma now. <laughs> anyway, and she said it takes a very, you know, special person to do the job that you do. And it's almost like a sacrifice because you are so empathetic and kind and whatever that you, you know, that's your sacrifice to, to have to do this. And I was like, nah. Why can't assholes do this? <laughs> no. For the so it's what happened? <laughs> Pardon me? For the animal's sake, they deserve empathy and kindness instead of assholes at the end. Yeah. No, that's true. I know. Yeah. Bunny Hugs and Mental Health is supported by Co-op. I've been a member of my local co-op, Sherwood Co-op, for about 20 years. If you live in Western Canada, especially the prairies, or spend any time here, You've probably fueled up or bought groceries at a co-op. You might even have a co-op number, or two, or three. You know if you know. But co-op is not just a gas bar or a grocery store. Although co-op is those things too, it's a different kind of business. Co-op members are owners and success is shared with everyone. Your co-op doesn't benefit one person or one corporation. Your co-op was built for everyone. Your co-op was built for your community. Learn more about co-op and find a location near you at co-op.crs. One thing I've learned through my experience with mental health and addictions is you never know what you need to hear until you hear it. Make sure to rate and review on Apple and to tell as many people as you can about the podcast so others can hear something they need to hear from one of my guests. After all, this is a free mental health service, which is a rare thing. So why not share with as many people as you can? <laughs> so, so what happens when you do get a, a client that's not very well liked or does that happen often? You know what I'm asking? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to answer? Aaron? <laughs> <laughs> well, controversial. Yeah, it's a sad thing. A mild example of that might be like nobody comes up for the open mic, right? Like you're doing a funeral and nobody wants to come up and talk that that hurts. And so it, I always try to encourage and plant seeds early on, letting people know to prepare for that. And that that's like an expectation <laughs> to avoid that from happening. Um, but Nothing yeah, personal. You're just all shy. We've had, <laughs> I mean, we can talk about Susanna together, Lauren, an example of someone who we really wanted to honor, but who didn't have a lot of people who were going to come and celebrate her. And it wasn't because she was an asshole. It was just because she was isolated. You know, she just wasn't someone with a lot of community around them, which is a sad thing that we see. Um, at the end of life. And right. in that case, our job's even more important because we're the ones who are going to reflect beauty and love, you know, back to her. So that's great. But but I guess to your point about assholes, <laughs> I will say that boundaries still matter in death. 
um, we are making a lot more concessions for people, right? Where it's not about us when we're working as doulas or a funeral director, you are expecting people to have big emotions and you know that those emotions have nothing to do with you, right? And so that's okay. But if they are pointing that assholeness at you, we don't have a high tolerance for that. I, I won't be abused in my work. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. And I would say, add to that, that a lot of death doulas are hired by families because they want their loved one to have a good death. Assholes may not have the same kind of supportive family. <laughs> they may be the ones who are in the nursing home alone and they're doing the direct cremation and they get no service. Um, people who we walk into the home and they're assholes, like Aaron said, you have those boundaries, but people are jerks because they're dying. Mm -hmm. Like it hurts some Not people to die. Best of them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it really kind of depends. Like if somebody's a real bad seed, their families may not even be there supporting them. They may have no service. We may never know that they exist, but the other ones may just need to soften up a little bit. And they're really, truly not assholes. They're just somebody who doesn't want to die, is scared of dying, needs to process some stuff, had extreme trauma as a kid that they still haven't processed or let go of. So why are you an asshole? Well, the death duel is here to help you figure that out. <laughs> or the more common than not, like as a funeral director, I'd have people who just say, I could care less. And that's that. And that's... Mm going to be their process and what they need to go through um yeah. yeah but if somebody's like an actual asshole that's been hired a doula i think that there's probably some underlying stuff there because they are reaching out for a reason mm -hmm. for sure yeah um and, and death is so i mean it's so nuanced and every case is different and uh, you think of someone that's uh, i i mean sometimes there's people that don't have a lot of people at their funeral because they're like a hundred years old and they outlived everybody. Yeah. And then you have people that are, you know, I don't know, 40, 50, 30 years old and it's something really tragic. And then like the entire city comes out and you're, you're in this great big hall and uh, yeah. And it's just, I don't know. It's just, Death it's, is weird. And and then you, yeah, death is weird, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's sometimes it's hard for both of us when we have those funerals. Like she was mentioning Susanna, who was an absolutely gem of a human and had been isolated because of her illness for so long. So she mm -hmm. didn't have community. She didn't have people. I mean, we invited our friends who knew that we were working with her and had kind of heard her story. So we were like, you know, come on down. <laughs> mm. Um, is but yeah, that's definitely hard. But again, you can have a funeral at home, you know, especially if you are not welcome in a space, but you still want to grieve that person, have a funeral, light a candle, put out their picture, say the mm. things that you need to say. Um, so the size of the funeral doesn't always, doesn't always matter. But I know that sometimes it's harder for people, especially you were mentioning like a hundred year old who probably lived a full life. Has, there's so many stories that could be told, but a lot of those people who could also tell those stories are dead. <laughs> so that's yeah. where the legacy work comes in with mm. the death doula. Um, I got one yeah, more thing to say about assholes. Yes. <laughs> Um, asshole on the brain. Yes. So we, like we said, we want funerals to be an honest, accurate, and honoring depiction of the person who died. 
right? So if the person was abusive and the people who are sitting there to grieve them are like on some, they're sad, but they're also on some level relieved because this is like the end to a difficult or a painful relationship or situation with them. Mm-hmm. It may not actually serve them if the person who's up on stage is just going off about how great and sunshiny Mr. Johnson was, if that's not the case, right? So I talk about that early on with people when we're planning funerals. We say, we want maybe three quarters of this to be honoring to their legacy. We want to say the good stuff. But if there's bad stuff that needs to be said, if people are going to walk out of this funeral feeling like that was some BS, then let's include that at the end and we'll address it. And we'll say, you know, Mr. Johnson was not a perfect man. We know that there is, you know, grief in the room and complicated feelings in the room. And, and you open it up and you let the family lead. It's not my job to decide how much they want to go there, but it's my job to let them know in the beginning that they have permission to, if they want to, and they can tell me how much they want to, and then I'll cre- create that as best I can for them. Hmm. Have you guys ever Funerals. heard? Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say funerals are supposed to be a grieving space. So you have to make sure what griefs are are there too, like Aaron just said. What skeletons are in the closet that may need to be addressed in a safe space with a community that loves you, right? Mm-hmm. So if you do have to bring up some of the bad stuff, at least you're there with people who can hold space for you. Right. Have you have you ever heard of the Coffin Confessor? No. Mm-mm. Google that book. So <clears throat> he, he's a guy in Australia, and I, I interviewed him on the podcast actually. And people hire him to go to to their funeral and like out people <laughs> or like um, if they like the one guy, he was like eight years old and he had like a sex dungeon in his house. And he's like, he hired him. So like when I die, you come in, dismantle everything, get rid of everything. So the family comes mm-hmm. and doesn't find it. And like he just does all these. Sometimes it's hilarious. And other yeah, times it's just. I love uh, that. That yeah. we tell doulas to be aware of that. That is something that a doula will bring up to a client. Say, hey, when you die, do you got any unmentionables anywhere that need to be taken care of before your your mom or whoever comes in and starts like cleaning out the space? Because back to the Swedish death cleaning, we do have to clean out people's stuff when they die, right? We really do. And so that's a self-loving thing to do, to think about ahead of time, like, okay, what do I want people to find and not find? It's also loving to them what you want them to find and not find. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when my sister died almost two years ago, and that was a real thing, like her death was unexpected. We knew she Mm. had, she won't mind me sharing this. You can edit it out if it's inappropriate, but we knew there was a box of sex toys somewhere, you know, (laughs) (laughs) we didn't know where. And my mom and I were the first ones kind of cleaning out, but a few days later, extended family, little nieces and nephews, everybody's going to be coming to help and we don't want them to find them. So we looked high and low in all the logical places, did not find. Wait, wait, wait. So it's okay to talk about death, but we can't talk about sex. Great. <laughs> maybe, a nef- maybe a niece would have been like, nah, nah never well, mind. Yeah, it was a three-year-old who ended up finding them. And she was like, what? No, she actually found them? Yeah. But we just took them away. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Can I keep you brought this? up a good point about sex and death because there is... Somebody, uh, I wish I knew who quoted this, but um, it's like, we talk about sex all the time and we don't get pregnant. People have this fear that you talk about death and you're going to die. Like you're cursing yourself in a way, but, but no, right. Me and Aaron talk about death probably more than 
99.9% of the <laughs> people in our lives, <laughs> every day of our lives, we're talking about death and knock on wood, we're still here. So, uh, <laughs> There's the and the, all those people talking about sex, I don't think that they're just, boop, I'm pregnant now. Oh my gosh. Hey, when I was 16, that's, I talked about sex probably 99% of the time and I never got it. So <laughs> yeah. there you go. That's there you go. Right I'm there. just now starting to talk about it all the time. So. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should stop talking about it. <laughs> uh, but it's true. Yeah, you, it's inevitable death. And it's so, I, why, yeah, it's so bananas that uh, we don't talk about it. Even when you know the person you're visiting is dying, going to be dead soon, and you still avoid the subject. I mean, I don't know. But it's also hard because like, yeah, I don't know. <sighs> It's really, I think, avoiding the subject of grief in the end. Yeah. Like, that's why you have this whole podcast, right? Um, people don't want to say, you know, I think about when my grandma dies. She's 78. And it's like the worst thing I could possibly imagine. I talked to her every day. She was like my second mom. She was 40 when I was born. Like, she was a young grandma. And we talk about her death. She's planned her funeral. She's ordered her caskets and all that kind of stuff. But I know when she's actually dying, it's going to be so hard for me to be like, okay, let's make sure everything's planned out. But just because it's hard doesn't mean it's bad. And I think that that's a -hmm. hard thing for people. They think it's bad to talk about death with somebody who's dying. It's not. They want to talk about it, like you said, but it's hard for us. But it's not bad. It's just hard. That's what we would not being death positive. And people are like, what does that mean? It doesn't mean like... Yay, death, go, pro, death. It doesn't mean that. It just means like... It, we, Let's all die. We recognize <laughs> inevitability and we're being honest about it so that we can have more meaningful communication around it really is all that it means. And think about that. That's such a privilege to be able to say goodbye to the people you love and for the family to see that as something bad also. Maybe that changed that because... You know, when you don't get the opportunity to say goodbye, that's a whole different kind of grief, you know, but to be able to have that space, which again is something a death doula can really help facilitate because not only are they working with the person who's dying, they're usually also always working with the family because they have just as many fears and worries and that kind of thing. So just really you're saying like, this is a privilege not a lot of people get these kind of deaths. This is what we're actually working for, for everybody to kind of get these kind of deaths. Um, yeah. Um, and then, like you said, then there's like tragic accidents where you don't get to say goodbye. It's just they're, you know, you, just suddenly they're gone. Uh, mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't know what's worse or what's better. It's like ripping the Band-Aid off or slowly peeling it off. I I just compared life to a Band-Aid. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think most people, nobody wants to watch their loved ones suffer, but again, having the opportunity to care for them, especially if it is a parent, they cared for you, they bathed you, like now it's your chance to show up for them. And it's, it's again, it's an opportunity that I think so many people miss out on because they're afraid. They're afraid more often than not, like I said, of being sad, but guess what? It's okay to be sad. You're sad because you love them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think maybe that's a lot of it is the, the person dying has accepted it and mm-hmm. the people that are coming to visit haven't quite accepted it yet. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on, on euthanasia? Do you think 
folks should uh, just live as long as they possibly can or... Uh, Canada has such amazing laws. America, not so much. <laughs> do you want to talk about that? We yeah. call it medical aid and dying in America. Yeah, we, we do too, actually. Yeah, yeah. We do too. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a beautiful circle back to you talking about when you were at the animal shelter and, and with our own pets as well. We recognize a time where the quality of life is not as valuable as the uh, or the quantity of life is not as valuable as, as the quality of life. And, and I think there's a recognition too, that animals die, right? Like we know when we get a dog that its lifespan is 15 to 20 years, for example. And so there's a, an acceptance of that when the time comes um, that we don't see extended to humans in the same way with humans, we get all up in our heads about if we're playing God and if this is right. And the person loses their autonomy to a greater collective, you know, kind of judgment, I guess. Um, I also well, think that an important faith gets in the way sometimes faith too. Gets in the way sometimes yeah. for sure. Here's my here's my argument, if you will, for that though. Like <laughs> I joke sometimes like penicillin, antibiotics, they've saved more lives than Jesus, you know. We take so many medical interventions to save people's life. The average lifespan in medieval Europe was 36 years old because everybody died. The water was bad. There were, you know, there you, you get an infection. Sorry, sister, we're cutting that leg off. You might be dead in right? Like you would sew their their burial garments at the same time they would sew their wedding gowns because they expected life to end quickly. So my point is we've done so much in modern times to extend life beyond what might naturally be a shorter lifespan without it. We do so much to keep people alive. And we especially see it at the very end of life. You know, somebody's 80, 90, 100 years old. It's like we forget the logic that a body has a limited lifespan and that we are going to die. And you see every, every system starts failing, their heart's failing. Now their kidneys are failing. Now their lung, you know, their lungs are failing. Everything's failing. And you've still got doctors who are like, we can save them. Yeah. That's not what the body's trying to do. It's not what the soul's trying to do. That's not what the spirit's trying to do. So it becomes a really complicated conversation. Like where are those lines? I don't know. I'm not qualified to say where those lines are. I think they probably vary for each person, but autonomy matters. What the dying person wants is I think what matters. Now, should we just be handing out prescriptions for everyone to go get these medications because they're having a bad day? No, like it's more serious than that. Here in the States, you have to have two terminal diagnoses from two separate doctors, both saying it's unlikely that you're going to live more than six months. So death is inevitable. Death is inevitable. And it's just a mercy of saying, you know what, these last six months or however long are going to be crippling. They're going to be progressively harder for me and for the people who love me. And there is an autonomy and maybe one last privilege available to me in this lifetime to die on my own terms, to do it on my own terms of the way I want to do it before I'm taken anyway. So we are in favor of it. So you're going to help. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, okay. too, the the people who the person who's dying has to make this decision. We get to make that decision for our pets, <laughs> so right? I didn't need to laugh. Like, Sorry, <laughs> mom, you, you're going. <laughs> you can't be like, oh, for you. I can't deal with this anymore, doctor. No, you can't do that. But it, have you know, a meeting Aaron next made, week. We can't. Yeah. <laughs> this is like getting kind of inconvenient. <laughs> <laughs> but. When people are terminally ill, most of them feel powerless, right? They can't right. control anymore what's happening to their body. They can't control anything. They can control this. And mm -hmm. that empowerment has my, – my mom is a hospice chaplain. And in Colorado, medical aid and dying has 
luckily become very normalized. I mean, I think she has, she was saying she would get one client a week at one point. She actually, we were raised Catholic. And even though she's not Catholic anymore, me and her have had some very tough conversations. I don't know if she was so much for it when she first started, but she shared that there was one woman. And when she got the medication, she just started laughing and smiling and crying because she knew that she would have freedom. Her kids weren't excited. They weren't. They were sad, but she was because she finally had some control finally at the end of her life and she wasn't going to be hurting anymore. If your dog could not walk and had kidney failure, would you just have an IV and just be watching them every day? No. I know. That's so weird. It's almost like it almost turns into a pissing contest. How long can we keep this person alive or this thing alive just because we can? It's like, and what's that quality uh, of life for somebody that you have loved for so long and you just can't let them go versus knowing that their body is trying to leave so bad. And that's playing God just as much as medically even dying where euthanasia would be. Ooh, shots fired. (laughs) (laughs) So in Canada, there's the talk of for mental health or mental illnesses and mental health reasons um, mm-hmm. doing uh, made. Uh, they the government's done it and then taken it off the table and then put it back and taking it off because it's just so controversial. It's and now slippery they, slope. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. That's the slippery slope there. Yeah. yeah. So now the just the other day they decided they're going to look at it again in 2027. So yeah, I think like, it's ba- we'll, come, we'll circle back to this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What year is it? Uh, next election. Next time. Next election. Okay. Put it on them. Let's put it on them in the future. Yeah. The world is later. <laughs> yeah. And I've talked to people that have applied for it for those reasons. And I've talked to a psychiatrist who was against it. And it, it is, man, it's, it's, I don't know what to think, but. Is it accurate um, that that is available in Sweden? I've heard that. Yeah. I've read articles where it's some Scandinavian countries. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, depression can be a chronic illness in a way. I mean, if, if I don't want to say I'm for or against it because like Aaron said, it is a slippery slope. Mm -hmm. Um, But if it's something that they want to do and it's been something discussed about for six months or however long it needs to be, then again, that's their choice. Suicide is you a- You have to apply though. So a whole yeah. board of people decide whether Ex- or not you- yeah. Exactly. It's not something that this person is taking lightly. Mm-hmm. I think that we have a pretty serious epidemic in America with suicide and drug overdoses right now because we just don't have the support for people. Mm-hmm. And it's a decision that's made quickly and lightly. So the difference between that and- I don't know. I just want to say like the medical aid and dying and people who have had chronic illnesses, which I think chronic illness leads to depression and mental health stuff. So maybe they do have a chronic illness that they're going to live with for 20 years, but that quality of life isn't there. So do they qualify? You know, it's that's yeah, yeah. the slippery slope part of the why and how hard do you really need this and want this, but who gets to decide it? And yeah. unfortunately, sometimes they decide it for themselves. Because nobody's listening and nobody can help. Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't mean to turn this episode into made for mental illness. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that all those arguments have been have been made. And mm-hmm. um, the, some of the people that did have it happen before they took it off the table again, a lot of them were suffering with 
something that was physical as well, yeah. or mm -hmm. their mental health created something physical, like uh, mm -hmm. a like extreme eating. Yeah. yeah, yeah, like an extreme eating disorder. I mean, their body was shutting down anyway or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's it's all very complicated. And some people, like you said, that empowered feeling, some people applied, they got approved, then they started to improve mentally mm -hmm. because they had that empowerment wow. and then didn't go through with it. Wow. So yeah, it's, it's so... Yeah, nuance. <laughs> yeah. I mean, suicide is available with or without the support of a prescription. Um, and so it's not like you can stop people. And it is a slippery slope, so I don't have a definitive opinion on it. But I think if you were to compare the grief and the experience of someone who lost a loved one to unexpected suicide versus someone who lost them to a planned medically and dying for psychological reasons, um, the grief would be more manageable for the person who had made. Mm-hmm. That's true. Um, good point. Because I've spoken with point. a lot of families who have lost people to suicide and drug overdoses, and it, it seems like that's the most tragic way to go, or the hardest to accept, or the, the most guilt-ridden for the family too. Often, uh, have you had to deal have, as a death doula? Do you have you dealt with families that? Um, I mean, the after, I guess, doula part with families that have had really tragic um, loss. This one's too sensitive for me, Lauren. You got to take this one. Um, I think that those are obviously going to be the hardest ones because of everything you just said. Though, if I would have done this, if I, there's this disenfranchised grief again because you don't know where to grieve of like, should I have been able to do this? Should I have done that? And so I think it's just supporting the family and listening to all of those things, just sitting, what is it called? Being a rock <laughs> mm. because none of it makes sense right now. None of it makes sense those first few days, the first weeks. And so just sitting and being in that and letting them say all those things, because there's nothing you can do to fix that or heal the person or heal the family. This was unexpected. And like you said, it's not a death that, <laughs> this is hard for me too, Aaron. Uh, it's nobody wants, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I wasn't expecting you guys to be so emotional. I mean, so there is, <laughs> it's not like you completely dissociate your job from. Oh gosh, no. My suicide almost two years ago. Oh, I see. Yeah. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. Um, I'm a suicide attempt survivor myself. That's kind of the whole reason of the mental health. Wow. thing and I'm in recovery of addictions and stuff but um, and, and, but guilt can happen uh, with any death uh, I, I saw it in my teenage son when we did put our dog down a few years ago he, he, like for days he was like oh I should have walked him more I should have let him sleep in my bed more I should have done this I should have done that and it was it was so hard to see him go through that guilt and stuff I'm like man, no, don't worry. He had a great life. Like, don't worry. It's, it's fine. And it, it kind of caused a bit of a complex in him. Cause yeah. then, cause we have two dogs. So then he was like almost, um, overcompensating with her other dog after the first one mm -hmm. passed. And I was like, Oh my God, this poor kid, I guess he's, he's learning his grief somewhere. Yeah. And sometimes it's that guilt that's really common for people. I wish I would have visited them more in the hospital. Mm -hmm. That happened a lot during COVID. Yeah. You know? 
I wish I would have visited my mom a few months before the lockdown. And then they never got to see her alive again. You know, that was conversations that I was having a lot because you, you can't get that back. And again, let's remember that we're all going to die. Everybody we love is going to die. Our pets are going to die. I'm going to die. So you got to live and you got to tell the people you love them. And you have to have those experiences. We are very focused on like the now and the future constantly. I mean, I think that that's how, especially here in America, (laughs) we work hard. We want the stuff. We got to do this and this and this. And sometimes we forget the simple things of like just calling your grandparents to say, Hey, how are (laughs) you? Because you may not get that opportunity. And if we make a conscious effort every, not every day for everyone, for me, I do just knowing like, Oh, I'm alive today. Oh, look at that beautiful bird. That's so cool. You know, you may not get that tomorrow. So say, I love you to everybody every day, if you can. And when people invite you to birthday parties or celebrations say yes, because those are magical moments. And I feel like I've regretted, like, Oh, I didn't want to go to their party. But every time you do, you have like a meaningful conversation with somebody there. You get to see your friends smile and surrounded by people who love them. You know, it's just those are the things that really matter at the end, not the pants that you bought. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? I mean, I think you should buy the pants and have the connection. (laughs) If you can do both. (laughs) Right. Unless they're assholes. Unless they're assholes. So it's funny. I mean, again, it's like. It almost seems like a paradox, like the more you're accepting of death, the better you'll a better life you'll live yeah. because you'll appreciate mm-hmm. your life more. That's or the big lesson at the end of it all. Yeah. Mm, that's interesting. The, that's the big one because it's true. Like one of the things I've really embraced this year is that we can make more money, but we can't make more time. Our time is by far our most valuable thing. And like Lauren's mentioned a few times, especially in America, we tend to be busy. We tend to be proud of being busy. We tend to be, you know, working really hard to maintain these, these lifestyles. And some of that is so empty, you know, because it's really like the most that we can do with our time is connect and feel love and explore and help other people. And so that's what death teaches us. Death teaches Mm -hmm. us like what really matters. And also I think it teaches us that if we're going to experience a lot of grief, we have a responsibility to seek joy. Hmm. No one on their deathbed says, is there anything you regret? I wish I was at the office more. Yeah. But yeah. we got it. I mean, it's, it's a familiar rat race, you know, so many of us yeah. get stuck in it. And it is also one of the most common things people say at the end of life is like, wish I would have worked a little less and lived a little more. Well, they say some of the poorest countries in the world are some of the happiest because um, they had that connection with the family. I mean, they all live together in the same Hot or whatever. (laughs) Well, and look at their death traditions too, because they are so involved and so loving. And the thing is too, I think you might've mentioned this earlier, but when somebody digs up their loved one and redresses them, it's their way of honoring them and loving them still. And he, and here we're just kind of like, Oh, they died. Let's not talk about it. And let's get back to work. Let's bury them on the edge of town. Yeah. Uh People are shocked by that. It's an Indonesian tradition that you're referencing. I can't remember what it's called right now. And it's every three years that they dig them up and they give them new clothes and a little bath. And like, they're not afraid. They're like their favorite foods. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. For like a week, they hang out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's time again for the segment, that Some Bunny special segment where we chat about who cooperated in your mental health journey and helped fill your emotional tank. Brought to you by Co-op. So who's someone you would like to give a shout out to for being with you during some of your darkest struggles? That's a really great question. Um, Last year, I was diagnosed with a health condition that was pretty scary And I definitely had to lean into a few people in my life. But I would say my partner, because he would just sit and listen. And sometimes that's all we need is somebody who will sit and listen and not give their opinion, not try to fix things, but just listen. So that's who I would say I am grateful for. This is a great question. Who has been helpful to you in your grief? Because I think a lot of times people don't know how to do that. They're so afraid of grief, specifically of death grief, that they don't know how to show up and be a good friend for someone. And it's a skill we desperately need because we're all going to be in that position. Um, I could give a lot of examples of people who have supported me through my grief, but I want to use the example of my business partner, Lauren, because I experienced a really unexpected, terrible grief, um, suicide of my sister a couple of years back. And Lauren had to keep dealing with me on a day in, day off, uh, day out basis. We were still running a company together and I was experiencing such extreme, extreme feelings from guttural, can't go on sadness to rage. Um, my mind was, you know, not operating anywhere near how it had operated before the loss. I was a trash business partner for um, a few weeks or months. And because she understands death so much, you know, from her personal and her professional experience, because she understands grief, um, she was able to hold a lot of space for me through that, hold a lot of space for me not showing up as my best self. And um, rarely did I feel like she, you know, I felt like she was, she didn't judge me and she was patient. And there were times when she maybe needed to give me some boundaries, but you know, it, it felt loving and safe. And that is what we need. We need to feel safe and loved when we're in our grief. Is, is there anything I didn't touch on that you, you guys wanted to to mention before we go? Do you want to talk about all of our classes since yeah. you had no idea? Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> any of that stuff. Or that's have... what we do. We are teachers first and foremost uh, before we're death workers. <laughs> we run a school called Death Wives. And we teach all of this at length. We have everything from, you know, one hour recording classes that you can purchase on demand on our website to six week long programs. Um, We have a combination of in-person training. We're kind of very, very slowly touring the U.S. and offering um, training in different cities. And then uh, Death School is kind of our bread and butter. It's It's our program that talks about all of this. It talks about the cultural implications of burial. It does a lot of comparison between other places and here to show that the way we do it, we think is normal, but it's not really normal. Um, then we talk a lot about death doulaship, funeral directors, the professional industry, and then we end with more esoteric quandaries, what happens to the soul, reincarnation, near-death experiences, belief systems, you know, worldwide around um, the other side. So hmm. that's kind of what we do. And we're probably yeah. 90, 95% teachers now, and we'll still take cases here and there, but we can do more good and spread more impact by teaching other people to do this because there are way more people dying than there are death doulas. It's Ah. our favorite thing when we have a student reach out to us and say, I just had my first family. I mean, that's why we do the education. We can't meet every family. We need a community of death doulas and death workers to step in because the more 
again, the more people start remembering that death is part of our life and that we can make it sacred because it is, we celebrate birthdays, right? We celebrate weddings, but we don't like to celebrate death, even though that's like the final chapter of this person's life that lived fully. We still have this, this disconnect. And if we can clear that disconnect, then I think that opens the space for grieving to really ha- start happening. And grief is a whole other <laughs> 10 hour conversation. Thank you so much, Lauren and Aaron. I love your service. I think it's amazing. And I hope you are spreading the knowledge to so many other students so that this has become a normal kind of service people can provide because I think it's incredibly important. And I think people need to uh, talk about death more in general. So thank you so much for all of that. Please feel free to follow Aaron and Lauren on Instagram at deathwives. And while you're at it, you can follow me if you haven't been following me already, Bunny Hugs Podcast. And there's all types of uh, memes and notices and, you know, Instagram stuff on there. So please go ahead and do that. If Facebook is your jam, then I'm also on there, Bunny Hugs and Mental Health Podcast. Thank you so much to Co-op for sponsoring this episode and for partnering with me for a a speaking engagement in April. Uh, If your organization or company or school would like to have a speaker talk about their experience with addictions or mental health or ADHD or running a podcast, I'd be more than happy to uh, do that for you. Uh, It could be in person or virtually. You can reach out to me at bunnyhugspodcast at gmail.com. We can uh, figure something out and go from there. And we thank you so much for listening. Don't forget there's Thursday's episodes. If you'd rather watch it on YouTube, you can go ahead and do that. Until next time, please remember to make your beds and take your meds. Bye. Bye.